Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking to writer Nick White. Uh, I, I think probably our conversation is going to rage all over the place. Hello, Nick. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited to have a free-ranging conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I have so many things that I want to talk to you about. That's why I think we're going to have to do two episodes, another one, you know, another time. But um, so... The first book that I stumbled upon of yours, which uh, had to survive a summer, um, can you just sort of tell our, I guess, tell our listeners, you know, who you are and what inspired you to write this wonderful novel? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. This has been like really interesting to do a podcast and think about these two books that I wrote that I um, I'm currently in the weeds of writing another one, and I feel kind of distant from both of these books right now. And so it's been fun to really like think back on them as a writer and where I was as a writer at that particular place and time. Um, the novel, uh, How to Survive a Summer, is uh, sort of, I described it, I think, when the book first came out. And I think this is a pretty decent way of uh, thinking about the book is I wrote a kind of alternative history for myself. If I grew up, um, I'm a Southern uh, person. I grew up a Southern person. That sounds like, uh, <laughs> that sounds bad. I am originally from Mississippi. Um, and while I lived there, I was very closeted. I did not come out until I was like around, well, I came out in my mid twenties, but I had already moved away for grad school to Ohio. And um, as I, I was in an MFA program at the time and and I started thinking about my life and what it looked like because I'm very, I was very interested as a writer of writing stories set in Mississippi where I was from, which is sort of the central area of the state um, and kind of the ways in which it has influenced who I am and how I think and how I approach the world. And I thought about like what would have happened had I been outed or came out, had the wherewithal to come out when I was younger, like still beholden to my parents, you know, not an adult, you know, just trying to like recreate what that would have looked like, what my mindset would have been. And I quickly came to the realization. Oh my God. So how to survive a summer is like, is like an uncle Lucas exaggeration story. Yeah, it really, it really <laughs> is. 
That's really so is. awesome. I feel, I feel very much like all of my stories are in some ways Uncle Lucas's exaggerations. <laughs> just, just, um, just for our listeners, so they're not completely lost here. I've, I've been living completely in, uh, in this author's world for the last couple of days. So that uh, he, Uncle Uncle Lucas, is a short story in the newer book, uh, Sweet and Low. And it, it, there's this wonderful uh, word I put, I've had it in my notes, actually. So he said, uh, no, what I think Uncle Lucas was doing with his storytelling was trying to shape the world into something better than it was. In his heart, I don't think he could face the finalities of life. And so in memory, he colored events differently. And he was, uh, it's just such an unbelievably beautiful passage. So that's, so basically, uh, How to Survive a Summer is an Uncle Lucas story. Well, I would say actually, you know, thinking about that package and thinking about that paragraph and how Uncle Lucas sort of always sort of lifts something up into fiction and kind of gives it gives it a more kind of optimistic bent. Um, I will say that How to Survive a Summer is more in the narrator uh, Forney's point of view because it, it is a quite dark book. Um, it um, I think there are hopeful elements to it, but one of the things that I realized about myself then, which should have been obvious, but I think anytime we as artists or people just reflect on ourselves and like who the versions of ourselves we are before, it comes with a little bit of regret for um, kind of who we were, sort of snapshots of of sort of being products of our our raising for for lack of a better term. And, And I knew that had I come out or had been outed in some way, um, while I was still in Mississippi living with my parents, I would have wanted to go to conversion therapy. My parents, you know, would have probably wanted me to, but I would have wanted to too. And that was like a very interesting moment of recognizing the kind of ways in which I've internalized homophobia mm-hmm. and I had internalized homophobia. And so the novel started off very much with me, like unpacking that, um, and it also includes a lot of sort of various interests that I have or have sort of been um, uh, uh, just fascinated by um, horror movies, slasher flicks, in particular how queer folk are portrayed in those movies um, as either victims or monsters uh, or sometimes both. Um, the ways in which conversion therapy uh, at least in my research and speaking to people, um, sort of asks you to kind of do this kind of, I mean, the, the physical stuff can be pretty brutalizing, but it's the, it's the sort of like spiritual reconfiguration that it attempts to do, um, that I think is very damaging as well. And, and sort of like, what would it look like for a person to have gone through that and have survived that? And then, you know, sort of once he survived it, kind of not thought about it again, sort of just put it down. Because uh, I also, after speaking to a lot of people who survived conversion therapy, there's a great kind of shame that comes from like having gone through that or having experienced that. It's almost in a way like I've noticed some people who are, who are out and, um, living, you know, great lives, but are still sort of hesitant to admit that they went through something like that. There's still a lot of like shame intertwined with that, or at least it was at the time. 
Um, and so just exploring all those thorny issues um, with the book as best I can and still remembering that actually I need to tell a good story too. Um, mm-hmm. And and so... That's oh, a fantastic that's, story. I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was... Uh, I mean, it's very... It's, it's painful in places and it's... Uh, it's very honest. Like very often when people tell stories like this, there's this, you know, sort of this bad traumatic thing that happens and then, you know, they get out of it and, and then it's like, oh, and they, and they lived happily ever after and they went off into the sunset. But like instead this shows how uh, these people are scarred, you know, they're kind of like, they're, they're walking, walking wounded, you know, they're still sort of, dealing with the the baggage it's funny that you said that because i i actually uh in one of my classes i've covered conversion therapy and and we've read uh memoirs on it and you know all different things and talked about it and one of the things that struck me and you just you just reminded me of this when you're saying that is that people who've gone through this process or something like it it's because they're trying to like fiddle around with things that are so central to your sense of self, like to who you are, that um, afterwards, you know, regardless of how, you know, how it worked out, they just go through life with this deep, deep uh, insecurity. Like they just don't know if they can trust their feelings. Because if you go through something like that, it it teaches you to be deeply skeptical of your most deep preferences. So like if you ask them like this this one guy that I'm thinking of right now who I, I interviewed actually and he he said, you know, if like sometimes my boyfriend will ask me like uh you know, what kind of ice cream do you want? I'm going out to the store and he'll say and he'll get all like flustered and he'll say like what do you want? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I think I want this, but I'm not sure. And he just said, I have this deep insecurity of like what I actually want because I was taught to to sort of question really deep things like that, right? Which is a, a kind uh-huh. of almost like unfathomable psychological abuse. It's really, really crazy. Right, yeah. Yeah, and no, yeah. And, and while you were thinking, I was thinking about one of the things I depict in the book and one of the things I thought was pretty um, harrowing was this idea of doing a kind of family tree and figuring out sort of like part of this is like figuring out like how the, the children carrying on the sins of the parents, you know, paying for that and how like there is a sort of um, evangelical branch that believes that, you know, being gay is a product of being um children of divorce or you've been abused in some way or Disney Disney, (laughs) or one of my favorite there's this book that I referenced because I remember seeing it when I was growing up um uh, I don't know if you've ever I don't know if this book was ever published in Montreal but uh it was called Every Young Man's Struggle have you ever heard of this book no okay so it is a um it is an evangelical book and it talks about uh, men, young men growing up and their damaging relationship with masturbation <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and like lust, right? And how to deal with lust. And there was like a little chapter in there um, 
I think maybe towards the back. I can't remember. It's been a few years since I've read it, but it talks about what happens if you have same sex desires. And uh, one of the, the sort of like reasoning, it's sort of all steeped in stereotype too, where it's like you had a very strong willed, over dominating mom. Your dad was um, emasculated by her. You did not have good men as role models. And therefore, you do not understand what appropriate relationships with men look like. Um, and that is very insidious, you know, it, it just sort of like, it just sort of like creeps in. And I think that there is a way in which it kind of, because I mean, even in the most liberal of cities, like we still, you know, we still live with homophobia, right. And we're still sort of like live in this world that is like very much geared towards compulsory heterosexuality um and there's a way in which there's something nefarious and seductive about someone saying to you if you will just do these things you will be able to fit in to the dominant monoculture um, and it's gotten better, certainly, but I do still think that is a seductive and insidious uh, sort of promise. Yeah. Well, I think I kept the one of the things I kept. You can tell me if this this sort of scans for you, but that I kept thinking about when I was reading uh, your novel is, you know, the Roger Williams, you know, the dissenter in the early kind of New England colony, and he had this notion that he talks about a great deal in a lot of his religious writings on religious freedom, where he talks about soul rape. Uh, Sometimes he calls it soul killing or uh, soul oppression. And he was, uh, Martha Nussbaum, the philosopher in her book, Liberty of Conscience, she uh, really talks about him extensively and says that this is part of a really important American tradition. But so he said that the state, which was just sort of kind of taking shape at that point, um, the modern nation state, he said the state has the right to assert its sovereignty over a particular geographical area. And the, the state can can control your actions to some extent. They can sort of decide what you can and cannot do. Uh, but the state uh, should never tell you what to feel or what to want or what to mm-hmm. desire, and that, uh, and of course, the some of the more conservative Puritans fired back. I mean, they ended up like, you know, kicking him out, and he had to go to Rhode Island and everything. But like, they they criticized this and said, "Well, what if somebody has like, you know, horrible desires and they want to do like really really bad things?" And he said, "Well, that's uh, that just means they're one of the damned and whatever. Like, we <laughs> we have to find a way to deal with them, uh, you know, one way or the other. But we shouldn't like make." rules for the saved based on the damned and like uh the elect uh, you know shall have to be from a very young age have to be taught to listen to their inner voice and that, because that's the voice of the holy spirit and so that if you he said anytime you try and control what people you know to say thought crimes is is way too 20th century totalitarianism stuff this is more like it's in a very kind of christian um, anarchist mold but he he thought you actually need to really encourage kids and teenagers to listen to their deepest yearnings and desires and fears because that's 
that's where they're going to find the strength to be able to live uh, a life of integrity and that it's that teaching them to lie to to themselves and to other people is uh, even if you win, you lose because and I kept thinking of that because there's a way in which the whole idea of conversion therapy is, I know this may sound funny, but like profoundly kind of anti-Protestant, I would say specifically. Because mm. if you say, if you have this whole branch of Christianity that's supposed to be based on your you know, unmediated relationship with God and having, you know, listening to, just to the Holy Spirit and the Bible and stuff like that. Well, then that's putting a huge amount of weight on the individual's kind of sense of self and right and, and paying huge amount of attention to your your inner life, right? But if you if you're telling people your inner life is is flawed and broken because of Disney movies or an emasculated father or you know something else, an overbearing mother. Uh, I don't. It's interesting. I, I just don't understand how they think they're going to make a good Christian out of that person, even if they do manage to like beat the devil out of them, as it were. Well, it's so interesting you say that because you said um, I keyed up when you said the word anti-Protestant, and I think in many ways it's probably very anti-Protestant, but it seems very pro-evangelical um, idea to me just growing up. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, which has a litany of issues. Um, uh, but like this idea of um, evangelicalism and the way it has been kind of weaponized in the States, um, uh, I, I think there's, there, there's something about this idea um, or at least there was when I was writing the book, I think there, there are like many denominations that in the Protestant slash, I don't know if they would technically be considered evangelical sort of faith, um, like certain, uh, certain parts of the Methodist church, for instance. And of course, like Episcopals, um, are very, uh, gay friendly and, um, open to, uh, queer segments of their flock as it were. But then there's this other brand of evangelicalism where it's like, you know, this is, this is spiritual warfare. And um, this is something that you need training as like a spiritual warrior to like get as close to Jesus as possible. Because if you ask him to do anything, he, he can do anything, right, according to, like, this belief system. And, like, you've got to be faithful and have faith that he will, um, through his blood, like, wash your sins away. And that includes, like, your sexuality, if it is, in their mind, deviant. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you ever got back into the day. Did you ever get into Six Feet Under? You know, I I did not get into that show because I did not have access to uh, HBO when it was coming on. But I've, I've recently thought about going back and watching the show because I really liked, but when I did have um, access to HBO, I watched Alan Ball's other series, True Blood. Oh yeah, which, fantastic. Yeah, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have some qualms with like the last few seasons, but like when it first started out, it was like very, it was like this interesting interrogation of the South and othering in like a really cool way that I had never seen before on television. Yeah. It's, it's 
I mean, what they do with the, especially the vampire genre is just so interesting in that show. Like they, they, they actually kind of took it in some new directions. It was interesting. Uh, but I, I like, I liked True Blood a lot, but uh, Six Feet Under is, um, is way more intense and it, it's very, mm. very powerful. But there's one character there. I, he's one of the most unforgettable characters in modern fiction for me, David, the, kind of the main character of the show or one of the main characters. But there's this, you know, talking about like internalized homophobia. He's a very devout Christian in the show. And he, and he's not just like, he really takes his Christianity seriously and, and, but he's closeted. And even as he starts to open up and he kind of tells his family and stuff like that, he still kind of has this self-hatred in the inside. And he's still, when he hears about like um, gay bashing and things like that in this one, he works at a funeral home and he has these kind of visions of this young this young guy who was like beaten to death by a father and son in a pickup truck when he was walking on the street with his boyfriend and like mm. this like ghost is talking to him and he he's telling him like you know you're gonna end up here too you fay and like all this stuff and like it's really it's so powerful and he he then later on uh drops to his knees in his bedroom and he says oh Oh Lord, please, like, put in me a healing heart and take away all of this self-loathing and hatred. You know, and like, it's so like I'm just thinking about it now. And, like, my hair—it's incredibly powerful show, but it deals with that that issue that you don't necessarily just go off and live happily ever after after these traumatic experiences. It can uh, it can sort of shape your. It sort of reminds me, I think it was Joseph Campbell, he once said that uh, all atheists are not created equal. So he said, you know, I can tell from talking to somebody for five minutes that, you know, a a Pentecostal atheist is one thing, a Catholic atheist is a different thing, a, a Jewish atheist, a Sunni Muslim atheist. And so they maybe you've come to the same conclusion that you think uh, all this God stuff is bullshit, you don't buy any of it, but you'll still like your worldview will still be very much shaped by that upbringing. You know I mean? They, oh, absolutely. And, and so I, yeah. I think, you know, maybe every, everybody who ends up in, in a gay village at an urban, you know, center. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you've come, you've come to the conclusion, you figured one thing out, right? Your sexuality, but it doesn't mean that you are, are going to be, you're still going to have. So I'm wondering, how do you think your like sort of hardcore evangelical, upbringing and and by the way i had i had a somewhat similar upbringing pentecostal but the i'm wondering like how do you think um that sort of shapes you as you know a as an adult as a writer as like you know everything like how, how do you think it it's stuck with you that's such a good question um you know i i think it comes in terms well I will say this, when I was growing up, I always, always, always struggled with faith and belief. And I don't think, it, I felt like I was growing, and maybe other people around me struggled with this too, but everyone seemed to be so certain about the existence of God and and Jesus. And, and I was always like, I was always very deeply unsure and wanting to get that kind of certainty and always grasping for it. 
um, a kind of like that idea of like build your house upon a good foundation and not upon a sand, right? So it can mm-hmm. be easily washed away. I wanted to have that good, faithful foundation. And I kept always feeling like I was missing the mark. And I mean, I was like someone, I was the annoying, like, child in church where when the preacher would ask these rhetorical questions sometimes i misread as him like actually asking the congregation questions and i would try to answer (laughs) um uh and i would have to like you know i would get they wouldn't let me like when we were in this like small church um and i remember that i is unity baptist we did not have that many kids my own age we mainly had like adults and older people. And so a lot of the time I would go into the adult Sunday school classroom. Um, and I remember, um, having like, you know, cause I read the Bible, I, I studied it and I would have like these arguments with adults in Sunday school. And I would have to stay behind after church and talk to the preacher about it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, because not, not about like, not about like faith, like, but just about like doctrine and like what the, what the Bible was saying and their inter and like our different interpretations. And I'm pretty sure they all thought I was sort of like this alien. Um, and my, to the point where like my mom thought for many years that, she, that I was going to be a preacher because I was, so, I mean, I was so bound up in it. I was more into it really than my parents were. And I remember very, very vividly this way of like trying to like plan my life where I would have some sort of interaction with my faith every day, whether it was like joining in high school FCA fellowship of Christian athletes, even though I wasn't an athlete, (laughs) Um, uh, uh, going to Wednesday night prayer service, Sunday church, you know, and like doing all this stuff. And so I think that there's a way in which when I was growing up, there were two places because I was very much a nerdy uh, person guy growing up in the South um, had like what you would read now is very much like gay interests, you know? And, and um, there was a way in which there's two places where I felt very safe and I, it was in church and it was in the classroom and I felt like I was, I was valued for something more than I was sort of seen as, um, like outside of the classroom, like among my peers, right? Yeah. Body and person, um, that nobody really knew what to do with. But in church, I was like a child of God. And in the classroom, I was like a curious mind and I was able to like divorce the two. Um, and so I think that that idea of like leaving one of those, cause I'm like a teacher now. So I stay in the classroom all the time, but like this idea of, of like leaving the church and leaving the fellowship aspect of it is something that like, I'm deeply mournful of, um, even though like, I don't, I don't like believe in the, I don't really believe in God anymore. And I say, I don't really believe in God anymore because every now and then I can kind of like almost believe, you know, Mm -hmm. like even in, even in like 
my agnosticism slash atheism, I can't be certain too. Like I, yeah. I really am just like a deeply, deeply and like uh, confused person, I guess, because because every now and then I can like, I, I can like almost convince myself that yes, there is some kind of God that maybe does exist, but it is not the God that um, I was being taught to believe in when I was growing up. Yeah. It, 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 it may, it may come back. Cause I've been kind of amazed that I've talked to, you know, friends of mine, like when they were like quite, you know, near death or older and they, and they've talked about, you know, when you're having really kind of honest conversations when somebody's dying and they tell you, you know, everything. And they talked about how like they're, I mean, a preacher, actually a Pentecostal pastor told me this once. He said, yeah, you know, truth be told, my faith has kind of, come and gone and there's been some times where it's been so faint that i actually thought it was gone for good and then it just comes back and and he said it it really seems like it's a function of grace like we have this idea that like you could somehow i don't know if i white knuckle it enough i can like you know make it happen but like it it seems like it sort of comes and goes largely Mm. like without us having anything to do with it and i that i I find something almost kind of comforting about that. Yeah. Yeah. And regardless of the fact that like, if it's real or not, I do think that there are a lot of people that get a lot of like nourishment from that, especially a lot of gay people too. And that's why I'm so happy that there are denominations out there that don't discriminate that, that offer a kind of welcoming home for queer people. Because I think that, a lot of a lot of trauma can be inflicted on us by the church, by people who are who consider themselves believers, and to have like a kind of antidote to that, I think is really really nice. Yeah, no, I, I totally, you know, I I think maybe I slightly suspected when I saw you know the subject of your novel, I, I suspected that it might be a little bit like. Uh, you know, Imizola or like the, these kind of like Jamina, the, there was this whole kind of genre of fiction in the late 19th century. I think probably Dickens probably started it, but of you're trying to sort of, it's it's very didactic. I mean, not as didactic as like, you know, Pilgrim's Progress or something like that, but it's like very didactic, um, but so that there's a message and the message is, you know, whatever. And it's wrapped in a story the way that like, you ever those after school specials when we were kids? <laughs> like, they would like, oh, yeah. They would be oh, like yeah. really kind of like have this like message that was like just almost like giving kids medicine that's covered sugar coated to make it go down, you know? Uh, but your novel's not like that at all. It's actually, it wasn't even slightly like that. It, it's very raw. And I, I wanted to ask about one particular character in uh, How to Survive a Suburb, Bevy. I, I oh, yeah. found Bevy just like alternately infuriating and fascinating, you know, because Bevy is somebody that I, I know, <laughs> like I know I've, I've <laughs> met lots of Bev- I've met lots of Bevies. And uh, it's uh, just so, uh, yeah, so this is Will's friend uh, who's a lesbian lawyer uh, with a passion for social justice. And she's, she's sort of, um, I, I don't know, like, wh- where does she, where does she come from? 
for you? She sort of comes from this, like, I've met people like Bevy. I've been like Bevy. It's this idea of, I think, that someone, and I didn't, and this is like me putting on my PhD hat and trying to, like, um, closely explicate my own work, which is probably never a good idea. I don't think I was, I don't think I was, I, I don't think I was consciously thinking about that. But if I go back and look at Pepe, I think there's a way in which her strident kind of desire for social justice and for equity and this idea of what is right and what is wrong, you know, it's admirable. But I do think there is a way in which that kind of adherent again it goes back to like this adherence to doctrine or this adherence to a belief where you forget about the messiness of human people being sort of in the, you know involved in that right or or or, op, or operate as kind of like in sort of it almost feels like when someone is very devotee to a certain like belief and it's like we're going to do this this is our goal that, you know, then people sort of become kind of like speed bumps you have to like get over. And yeah. so I feel like Bevy is kind of like that to a certain extent, not all the way, but like there is a kind of that kind of like impulse in her, I think. Yeah. And also that that sort of tendency to, you know, not just say the personal is political, but like everything is political. That like right. you everything and it almost it, it becomes almost like socialist realism or something where like every work of art, every piece of of religious doctrine every ritual every everything needs to be sort of broken down in is this like good for the cause bad for the cause and of course neutral doesn't exist because like everything is either you're either with me or against me and it's this um kind of like i I just there's this one passage i i like wrote to access it was just wonderful i mean she, she sounds like a sort of like a I don't know, like a puritanical version of Jane Austen's Emma, uh, where she's, where she, you know, like the, the kind of always trying to, I love that. Like, I like love a that kind of like, for her. she's sort of like trying to set everybody up, you know, like a kind of pushy mother hen who's like trying to micromanage your friends' lives all the time. But uh, it's, where is it? It's the, um, yeah, so Bevy is then at bottom a whole lot like Will's estranged father, the preacher. Uh, our tortured protagonist seems acutely aware of this. Well, where's the passage? Well, just... Oh, right. Uh, so <laughs> this is at that event where they're like protesting against the horror movie, uh, which this that whole scene was just absolutely wild for me because I remember as a Pentecostal, as a teenager in my youth group, we got together and had protests for the last temptation of Christ, like I knew you were going to say that yeah. movie. I knew, I knew you were going to. We that like movie. We, we went and demonstrated against you know the last tempta- Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, and you know I thought back, and it's it's exactly like in your novel. None of us have, had seen the fucking movie. Like nobody, our pastor, none of the, nobody had actually seen the movie, but we knew it was wrong. You know, and it was right, like yeah. bad, and so we were protesting, but. When I when I was a kid, in in kind of the eighties and the nineties, the only people protesting, like trying to micromanage the production of art and stuff like that, was the Christian right. It was like right, right left wing people didn't protest art and try and like prevent movies from being shown or something like that. And so it was just this this amazing. So um, so Bevy stands up and. Hunched over the podium, 
Bevy preached fire and brimstone, listing off the many offenses of proud flesh. I thought of my father. He proselytized to congregations not much larger than this one. His means for reaching the unbeliever were legion and probably inappropriate for the setting. No matter the occasion, he could be counted on for a sense of humor, something Bevy, bless her, did not possess. <laughs> it's such a delicious passage. I just love it. I mean, like, so, I mean, you clearly, I mean, you're clearly sort of, you see the parallels that the, the narrator sees the parallels and it doesn't know what to do with them. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, so you just think that's just a speed bump. You just, there's no way to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also too, like this, this idea of, um, of processing something before you've seen it, all of that. Like that's, that's, um, that's really, really interesting. I had not like consciously like thought about it the way you're thinking about now, but this idea of like, yes, that was very much in the vein of like evangelical, like move or just like Christian movements of, of, of like protesting. Cause I remember people, I vaguely remember people protesting the last temptation of Christ or are hearing about it. But what I really remember or are how the evangelicals got so freaked out and went nuts over the Da Vinci Code. Like that was just <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. Like there was, there was, you know, tomes of like pastors have uh, tomes of books by pastors and like Christian evangelical theologists have written like books about the Da Vinci Code and like how it's wrong and bad and and completely missing the point that it was like you know a novel yeah <laughs> you know and like of course probably part of it is like um uh not not like accurate or whatever like and then I remember like it's so interesting that book was that book was sort of pilloried by evangelicals and then also like creative writers too right like literary fiction who just were just like aghasted that it was like this huge hit when they were just thought of it as like this schlockily put together thriller right and so <laughs> it's like getting it from like both ends and and yet the book you know was like a huge number one uh thing and 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 i i was thinking about that when you were saying that i also was thinking a lot about speaking to you and thinking about Montreal, one of my favorite um, movies about faith, um, Agnes of God, um, which takes place in Montreal, right? Or, yep. or, and and I, I really, I haven't seen that movie in a few years, but I really, really um, remember liking that and how this idea of certainty and what was really happening. And, and it, I, I like the way that movie ends not with an answer, but in kind of like a question. Um, it, it, it keeps the idea of certainty sort of, sort of mysterious and shrouded. Um, yeah. and, and I really, really like that a lot. And I think it was, it was originally a play, I think. Um, uh, and, and you can sort of tell that. Um, by thinking of, I'm thinking too of, um, you've got me thinking about all these fiction writers that I love who write about faith in, in really interesting ways. I'm thinking about this writer, Alice McDermott. I don't know if you've ever read her no. or not, but she, um, she writes a lot about being Irish and Catholic. And um, her last novel, 
is called The Ninth, not her last last, but her most recent novel is called The Ninth Hour, which is ostensibly about this um, woman whose husband commits suicide and she and her child are kind of taken in by these nuns and live sort of like, you know, next door to these nuns and like help out the laundromat and stuff. And, and this kind of interesting relationship that develops between her and the nuns and, and her, her child and her daughter. And the title comes from the ninth hour. I think it's that moment. And I could be, you, you probably know this better than I do and I'm probably butchering it, but it comes from that moment when, uh, before right after christ has died on the cross and before like the resurrection right it's like this moment of like darkness um where it's where like the only thing that exists there is no certainty that jesus is going to like rise from the dead be resurrected and defeat hell and and all of that. There's like that moment of like, he's gone, he's dead. And you, the only thing you have to, to sort of hold on to is the faith that he kind of has like left you with in this like moment of darkness. And um, when I heard Alice McDermott talk about this book, she talked a lot about how that for her was like how she feels a lot about being a Catholic. It's like this idea of like, you know, this like being kind of in this darkness, this like moment of uh, the only thing you have to sort of like grip onto is your faith. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's, you know, it, to go back to sort of Joseph Campbell's thing about the different kinds of atheists, I think um, Catholics, in my experience, you know, growing up in a predominantly Catholic place, it's been very shaped by that, but is they tend to sort of have this appreciation for for mystery and and keeping things like you don't need to be sure about everything like you don't need to be that in fact they're kind of uncomfortable with being too sure you know the, the, something to be really kind of sublime and beautiful has to be left a little bit sort of shrouded in mystery which i mean although mm. you you came up evangelical it's i i very much saw like i, I said to you in our correspondence back and forth. I saw a lot of echoes of James Joyce in your writing. I mean, I know people, just because you're writing about the South, people are obviously going to go to Faulkner and other, you know, the usual suspects. But I think actually the a better parallel is to Joyce. And I, I felt like How to Survive a Summer was reminded me of you know, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Uh -huh. And then the uh, Sweet and Low reminded me of Joyce's collection of short stories in Dubliners. Because in both of them, you have these people who are, like, stuck. You know, there are a lot of people who are just stuck. But they're they're not stuck because they're being kind of physically restrained or necessarily. It's it's in their minds. Like, they yeah. they can't... Um, they, they, they can't sort of imagine a better way of living right they just can't imagine a better way of being in the world and so they just fall back on these these patterns and they're clearly making them miserable uh, and then there's also like the complexity of people's lives that you know i mean that that wonderful short story that, that starts off um sweet and low the the lovers that, that is just mm. so beautiful i mean this i i actually you know i like for a lot of your characters, like not just Bevy, but Arnie too. I'm like, oh yeah, I've I, I know 
Arnie. I know Bevy. Like I've known a couple of these people that, you know, after they die, you find out that they they, they had like 10, 12 affairs going at once and they had all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yet they actually were not like a bad person. Like they actually were really loving and giving to a lot of people. And you just think like, wow, you know, like on the face of it, you think, okay, he's this shithead and who is like, and his wife is this victim. And then you find out like, well, actually they seem to have had an arrangement. Yeah. yeah, No, uh, first of all, I have to say, I am so humbled that you compared my work to Joyce. Uh, I think Dubliners is one of my favorite books ever. I really cut my teeth on that book. I, um, when I was in college at Delta State University, our mascot is, uh, by the way, the fighting okra. Um, uh, my teacher, uh, Dr. Susan Allen Ford, everyone had to take uh, this class that she taught called Advanced Composition for English Majors, uh-huh. where you just spend a semester figuring out how to write a term paper. And the book that she used that we wrote about was James Joyce's Dubliners. And so I closely read and reread that book. So I am sure that that is like coming through. Oh, it's really coming through. Because the parallels between Araby and Brake are astounding. Yeah, the same sort of like, you know, know, that, that kind of sort of always like this incredible sexual tension. Uh, and this, like, but you know, especially between the two dudes, it's obvious. But like, and th- this tension, but something that is like never really consummated, right? And it's like it's always yeah. kind of like there, yeah. And and, and kind of making these tricks. It, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense, actually. That well, you, I think, I, I love, I love, love, love that that book so much. And I love that story um, when you were talking about people not being stuck in a physical sense, but just sort of like this idea of spiritual paralysis, which is very much like what all the characters in Dubliners seem to be experiencing in some form or another. And this idea of them reaching some kind of epiphany uh, at the end of each story. Um, uh, and this, I love Araby. I really love the sisters. A painful case uh, comes to mind too from that book because if I remember the the protagonist in that is a man and and he he has this relationship with a woman and it's not sexual. It's it's more it's more like friendship. And then when she wants to turn it sexual, he is repelled. And like it's sort of it's not explicitly stated, but it's it there's kind of like some queer coding going on in that story. Yeah, that I think is really interesting. And then, and then of course, like my favorite, probably my favorite short story ever is in that book, and that's The Dead. And I know that's like saying the Mona Lisa is a good painting, but I, I just, I just love, love, love that story, and I love that moment um, when that misreading that happens between the husband and wife in that story, and <laughs> and the the sort of like the 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 ghost that kind of haunts the end of that story the gabriel character and the way in which it pans out into the snow at the end like that is just for me the sort of like i guess like my north star in terms of writing that like i always want to sort of like i think go towards something as good as that and knowing that i will always fail but like having having sort of like you know 
at least kind of, I guess I'm always grasping, whether it's my belief in God or my belief in my own ability as a fiction writer, but always like grasping towards like that kind of ideal because that that sort of that sort of move toward empathy at the end of like realizing that he doesn't know his wife as well as he thought he did. Yeah. I think that that has impacted me as an artist, as a writer in ways that I'm probably not even aware of because I think one sort of theme that's running through my books and stuff that I'm writing about is this, the ways in which we think we know people and realizing coming to moments in our lives where we realize that we don't know them as well as we thought we did, or there are ways in which we can only know versions of each other. Like intimacy can only take us so far. And like where there is, where like the sort of blankness is where we can't fully know each other, even if it's our lover or our parents or our children, that kind of like, whatever that is that's holding us back from like fully being pure empathy, like we sort of make up for with story and we we use our imagination. And sometimes that's accurate or close to accurate. And sometimes it's way off the bat. Yeah. I I, I love that kind of stuff where you just realize that, you know, people have different sides that they express to, to different people, depending upon the nature of the relationship. But then even it's even more than that. It's like, people have sides that they just keep to themselves that are just private. I mean, there's this one little like moment in, it's a Stephen King short story I read when I was a kid. You know, they made it into that famous movie, Stand By Me. But there's this scene where he gets, where, where he gets up early in the morning and he's just like, he gets up for everybody else and he walks to take a piss by the, the railway tracks. And he just sees like a deer, like this little like fawn. And, just sort of they look at each other like in this mutual recognition and it's just this absolutely beautiful magical moment and he just decides not to tell any of his friends about it even though it's such a great story i was like oh god that's fucking good you know like to just like that's i might keep that for me that's private i'm not i'm just gonna have that you know i love that kind of like sense that there are these that you can never really sum somebody up by you know, a bunch of adjectives used to describe them, like it's going to be. But there's also, yeah. a, it, in, uh, I, I, I had to say this sort of on a more lighter note here, but when you, you're talking about the Holy Warriors, I was oh, yeah. laughing so, because my wife and I have been watching The Righteous Gemstones, and, oh, yeah. you know, they have like that whole kind of subplot with like the, the sun, <laughs> he has like the muscle men and everything. I have so, to say, I haven't seen the show, so I need to watch it. Oh, I well, like it's, his, I it like will ma- you'll have you and... rolling around like it, it's very, very funny. Uh, but he has this whole scene where one of the pastors, the played by uh, John Goodman, one of his sons is like it is so clearly closeted, but it's hilarious. And and he has this whole kind of like Christian bodybuilders thing. But then after reading about it in your novel, I did a. a google search on i'm like okay if they're both referencing this the writers on it must be real and sure enough of course you know this um it is real there was this troop that went around to prisons and to churches and and would do all these you know ripping apart like uh, phone books and all these yeah i saw it they would they would rip up phone books they would they had the 
Porta Baptistry right there where they would baptize people. Um, that had like a huge, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember it vividly. I remember that. And I also remember um, uh, that was such a great get for like uh, <laughs> Christians and like, you know, using these bodybuilders to sort of promote the word of Christ, which, you know, I remember it being very entertaining and less scarring than um there was this other thing that was sort of like a traveling troop, uh, like the Holy Warriors, but it was this skit that was always put on called um, Heaven's Gates. Oh, and God, Hell's I saw that Game. so many times when I was a kid. Did you? Yes, oh, of my course. God. Of course. Oh, my God. That, that was that scared the shit out of me. I remember like being really me. afraid of that. Oh, my God, scared the shit out of me yeah. so bad. Like, oh, my God, it was just so traumatizing for for listeners who don't know this is like a religious play that's sort of built on vignettes of people right before they die yeah and they have like a moment to accept christ you know and they either accept christ or they deny christ or they're with someone who is a christian and then they're unsaved and they die and so then you go to judgment and um you have like this choir of angels and and like at least at the church that I went to with stairs going between these these angels and they're just like choir choir members who maybe are members of that church wearing these white robes and this guy standing at the top and he's like looking for your name in the book of blood or whatever it's called book of life I think mm-hmm. um, and if he finds your name there then Jesus appears and you like run up the stairs and give him a hug and you're like going to heaven. But if he doesn't find your name, like all the angels cover, use their long sleeves to cover their faces. And then these flames admit from the bottom of the stage and this devil comes out. And for me, I don't know what the devil looked like in the show that you saw, but he was wearing, you know, those wrestler masks. Yeah. Like the Mexican, like, uh, yeah, yeah, nacho, whatever, grande kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It It was like that, but it was, it was very much like sequined and like, he would come out and he would like drag these people off to hell. Yeah. And then, and then like at the end of the play, um, there would be like a call to salvation. Where altar call. Like, you know, yeah. yeah altar just call as like, I am. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's like, if you, you know, this is your chance, you could die going home tonight. And I mean, who is gonna like, not walk up on stage like I did. I was, and I'd already been saved, but I was like, I'm gonna do this just in case. Yeah, I just want to get some extra insurance. You never know. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was just. I remember that there were a couple times that I saw that play, and there were kids like would start crying because the oh, yeah. devil, this like evil drag queen devil, was like so terrifying. <laughs> And like, actually, oh, yeah. kids would cry. And there was uh, one time that somebody from uh, somebody from my church actually had to sub in because they one of the actors that was on this traveling troop was like, I don't know, sick or something was not there. And I guess they got really into it in this one performance because these are, you know, these are not just like. I don't know. They're not just actors. They're like method actors on on coke oh or something. You know, they're like really high on method actors on meth. Let's put it that way. And they were really into it. And they actually beat this one when they were dragging this guy off to hell. 
they got like really rough, like into character. And the guy afterwards had a real black eye forming. Oh my! It was it was God. really intense. Like it, it reminded me of these, you know, the, in the Philippines where they actually kind of crucify themselves on Easter and Good Friday or something like that, and they walk through the streets with you know nails through their hands and stuff like that. Like it was making it very real. Like it was not, there, and there wasn't any distance. I also remember that there was like no distance. It felt like you're in ancient Greece, like watching a, a tragedy or something. Like you were so close to the actors, like you could see them the spit flying out of their mouths you were sitting oh, down yeah. on the ground all the way up to them so it felt like you were in like like virtual reality glasses or something. i don't know back then it was very 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 powerful and affecting uh but yeah it's it, it's amazing i mean like to get through that and you know to be unscathed is kind of kind of amazing <laughs> so what are you working on what are you working on now like what is your next project Oh, I've been working. So I got, I got sort of sidetracked by the pandemic. Like I sort of got existential dread fired up and uh, it sort of (laughs) impeded my ability to write. I'm very envious of people who took the pandemic time to like write the novel they had been wanting to write all these years. But for me, I just, it was, it was, um, (laughs) it was, it was, a lot to like sort of overcome the moment and get back to the page but I'm working on um this book about a radical fairy sanctuary in Mississippi um a fictitious one that I'm making up uh there is of course like a, a very well-known radical fairy sanctuary in eastern Tennessee um uh near Short Mountain um but this is one that I'm completely making up that's in sort of like the backwoods of Mississippi and it, it sort of has like three generations of queer men it takes place roughly around 1999 the summer of the summer of 1999 and three gener roughly three generations of queer men about it's six of them uh living together and then one night this girl shows up seemingly out of nowhere um and they have to like figure out what she wants, what to do with her, that sort of thing. And, and they're sort of like interactions with her and each other in this, in this like four week period kind of changes things on the, san- on the farm, on the sanctuary that they, they wouldn't have anticipated. Yeah. I, one of my cousins actually, he's, uh, you know, he's, He's a gay man, and he he actually went and lived in that intentional community that you mentioned. He he lived there for, he was, oh, at the one the one on Short Mountain. Yeah, he was there for. I think it was. I'd have to. It's like it, it was a while ago. I'm like like it's a little foggy in my head. But he he lived in a few different kind of countercultural hippie commune, intentional community type things. And but I'm pretty sure he was in that one. And yeah, I remember him saying it was just very very powerful and he said to me he said like i feel like if i grew up in montreal instead of like in you know small town like in the states that this is what my life could have been like like to basically rather than having a bunch of shitty relationships with 
girls and then figuring it out in my whatever 20s and then and then sort of trying to sort of overcome all of this kind of bad programming and everything and like what if i started off and i could just sort of be myself from you know from day one like from puberty basically like what what would that have been like if it wasn't always like if my sexuality wasn't always defined with reference to you know heteronormativity like what would it have been right. like and he said it was just very interesting because it, it realized like i realized that in many ways my sexuality was sort of hyper sexualized if that makes sense because yeah. of my because of my and i didn't i didn't realize sort of i didn't know how to do male friendship very well and i didn't know how to do like romance and i didn't know how to do uh, you know, companionship. So it was always like this kind of naughty thing, which then becomes kind of almost like a little bit a part of your kink, right? And I, it's just, it was really fascinating. I just, and he, he was explaining to, to me and he said, you know, well, it's it's like if you grow up and you, let's say, the only way that you could, um, you know, and this, this applies to, I, I've met Catholic heterosexual people that are like this. So if sexuality is always something naughty, then even when you're in kind of a completely conventional relationship or later on and you're grown up and you're over that, uh, you still just kind of need it to feel naughty for it to be fun, you know, which is in a way is kind of like a sort of internalized, uh, I don't know, weirdness, you know, like about sexuality that you've, you've transcended the, uh, the fetters to some extent, but they're still sort of pulling your strings if I, if, do you know what i mean sort of it's yeah yeah i was thinking about that well thinking many thoughts but w- one is like uh i hope that uh off the air you will put me in contact with him and maybe he could like i could like interview him for this book because i am talking to a lot of oh yeah yeah i'll put you in touch with forrest absolutely yeah he would uh um, he'd be fine with that so he's he's um, he's delightful he's really cool <laughs> uh, yeah yeah no i i th- one thing that i have been researching and like reading a lot of um is uh there's a great um book called fire in the moonlight which has a lot of essays and people sharing their experience of living on radical sanctuaries and and eventually that led me to exploring the writings of harry hay who um was who's really big in the gay liberation movement and um and his sort of thinkings about queerness and what it means to be radical, you know, and, and many, if, if someone espouses to be, I mean, there's, there's no sort of like monolithic sort of thing of what makes a radical fairy, but one of the things that is very like radical then, and still I think radical now about this kind of queer utopian vision of Harry, that Harry Hay espouses is this idea of, um, like, you know, being gay is, is something to be celebrated. And, and like, it's something that is, um, that is a gift. And if you are a believer, then it's a gift from God. And that is still a very kind of radical idea, you know, you, you, in, in certain parts of the world, you know, um, this idea that, that, you know, not just like tolerance of gay people, but like a celebration of gay people, queer folk and like what that means and what that looks like. 
Mm-hmm. Like, um, like a sort of a black is beautiful, black power thing, like, but it, like a gay version of that, like sort of. Right. And, yeah. and, and almost like, a, like, almost like a separatism, but not like a permanent, just like sort of an, in, an intentional community where you go to sort of like figure out who you are. Exactly. Exactly. To try to untangle yourself from compulsory heterosexuality or heteronormative sort of things and just sort of like go into a space where, you know, being gay, being queer is kind of like de facto. You know, it's just like, it's like this is what being around your people, figuring out who you are, figuring out what your belief system is, figuring out like there's this wonderful, um, uh, do I have it here? I'm trying to think if I have the, I think I have the, I had to like, it was out of print. And so I had to special order it from the library. Oh yeah, Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture, which is this amazing book. I don't know if you've ever no. read it or come across this by Ar- Arthur Evans. And it really is an interesting book about um, this this guy doing these like ahistorical um, re, uh, reconsiderations of historical figures um, that are probably not true, but just as sort of like, really interesting like he goes back and looks at like Jane of Arc this Joan of Arc being like this kind of queer icon um and and moving forward from there but it's like this really interesting I, I'm reading like a lot of these primary texts that uh these men who are interested in living in these kind of sanctuaries and these separate separatist communities were sort of writing about and, and this idea of trying to um deprogram oneself um, both physically and mentally, which is interesting because it's like I'm almost writing a kind of. Um, a <laughs> I'm kind glad of, you said it. I was just about to say it. You're yeah, you're, yeah, you're really like, like you're really I sort did. of doing like an inverse of how, I, exactly yeah. exactly like I often think that like my work is often speaking to each other, speaking to the work that came before it in an interesting way, and I think like this book that I'm working on is very much trying to like rehabilitate the space in which I grew up. I grew up in a very sort of like rural country, you know, wooded woods, forest area um, in Mississippi, a space that I love, but I always felt that I would have to like not live there in order to be gay. And this idea of like, you know, queer men like living in the woods and like being sort of off in the woods, separate from everyone and living a kind of like interesting, introspective, life with others it's very interesting to me and appealing appealing and so I think I'm like in my own small way like rehabilitating the place where I grew up and wrote about and how to survive a summer and just making it queer yeah no it it reminds me of uh what is it the the prologue to thus spoke Zarathustra where Nietzsche talks about like the three metamorphoses of the spirit and you know he said from the camel to the lion uh, to the child and the he sort of says that in order to sort of become who you are, like to become yourself, you have to go through these stages. And the, one of the stages, which Bevy seems sort of stuck in forever, uh, is the rebel. Like the, the lion is the rebel that sort of turns against everything that you've been taught. And I guess in that case, it'd be heteronormativity and patriarchy and capitalism and all these things. But like, and you turn, and that's an important stage, but you can't get stuck there. Because if you're stuck there, then you're still sort of, if you try and be exactly like your father or exactly the opposite of your father, which I tried to be exactly the opposite of my father, if you try to be exactly like or exactly the opposite, then you're still defined by your father. 
right? If you try and just sort of invert the values that you grew up with, you're still defined by them in a different way. And so he said, like, you know, at a certain point, the lion has to go off into the desert and the whole, it's a sort of wacky kind of parable, but that the, the lion has to slay a dragon. And the dragon, each one of its scales has a thou shalt and a thou shalt not. And it's everything, you know, all that you t- that rule-bound kind of culture that you talked about, like, you know, growing up in and everything, that you have to slay the dragon. Uh, but that actually can be very terrifying because you've sort of, at that point, ident- identified your whole identity as as being a rebel. It's like uh, Georges Clemenceau, like when he said, like, uh, je suis contre, like somebody, a journalist asked him once, like, are you, f- you know, what are you for? And he said, uh, I am against, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I am like, you know, he didn't even say, you fill in the fucking blanks, you know, like, but, you know, you have to move past that and you have to figure out what it is that you want like not just like mm-hmm. what you hate and what you're against like what do you right. actually want and sometimes the only way to do that is to get into a space where you're just not always like on edge and and reactive you know where you could just relax and let your guard down and i, I you know, the whole idea of safe spaces i think has been really uh, it's a bit overplayed it, it by everybody but at, at its core i think there's something very reasonable there which is that Sometimes people have to just, I mean, I've seen this, you know, after I've been teaching for a long time and I've seen this with a lot of my students, especially my LGBTQ students, they'll, they'll often, they grow up in the suburbs in like very kind of religious conservative homes. And then they, they come out when they're, you know, at John Abbott college, like, you know, when I get to know them, uh, they, they come out and then they'll often do this thing where for a little while they go and like move with their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. They move to the gay village in Montreal and they basically just live like a completely, you know, 24 seven gay life for like, (laughs) for like their early, you know, for half their twenties. Right. And they just like, basically like their whole, you know, 95% of their social circle is gay, 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 like all the time. And they, they figure out who they are. Right. And then once they're done with that, then they can go back to the suburbs that they could move somewhere else. They could like go elsewhere and they just have a totally clear sense of who they are. Right. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've often told me, yeah, I needed those couple of years living in the village. Cause I just, I, you know, I had to just sort of purge myself of all of my self-hatred and loathing and all my kind of, yeah. you know, so that's, that's a really fabulous project. So are you going to, are you going to do sort of like a combination of, um, like anthropologists go and visit these places, interview people? I've been, well, the pandemic sort of stopped me from uh, going to many places, but I have been interviewing a lot of people and doing a lot of reading. I A part of me worries if I go there, um, like you said, anthropology, I don't want to like, ha- I've been like ethically considering this because I don't, want to profane the sacred space right exactly or steal and I don't stories want, yeah yeah steal the stories yeah, you'll be like rather, proud flesh again <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i would much rather exactly i would much rather um like read about it interview people and then like do my own imaginative take on it because one of the things that i i went to a reading um by louise erdrich and this really solidified my process for doing this book um and she talks about um 
indigenous communities and Native American communities and 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 this idea of um, of like not wanting to reveal like sacred traditions or like sacred places because like there's because you don't want to like give away secrets yeah, and, and don't and cast I don't your pearls that, before swine too right yeah and i yeah and i don't think there's like a one-to-one ratio i think there's many like complicated like uh, to, to what i'm doing but like she did say that one of the rules that she stuck by is if she read it in like an academic paper or she read it in like a nonfiction book or something then she felt like she could then fictionalize it in some way because it had already been written down somewhere else and she was not like telling tales out of school mm-hmm. and and so I think that there's a way in which I'm trying to do that too where I don't want and I've talked to a couple um folks who, who've lived on these sanctuaries before and, and um uh and like that there is this idea of like I don't want to I don't want to like in any way like share something in the book that's like one for one type of thing of what actually happens there and like get it uh, sort of like get it wrong or, or like or like misrepresent what they're trying to do instead of just like creating my own kind of thing that I'm doing that's sort of based off that but not me kind of like stealing anything I guess. Yeah, I think that's I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you just stick with your Uncle Lewis Lucas type yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, strategy, well, you'll and, you'll be fine. Where you're just sort of and, taking, and also yeah. too, yeah, and also too, like it's like I'm not. It's definitely not a. Um, it's not one that is like. It's a sanctuary that's like completely made up in Mississippi, and like every like one of the things that I have done realized in my research is that every sort of sanctuary every place it's like in this in the united states or or wherever is is like very much um uh 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 um uh different it all has its own like personality like there's this wonderful picture book called fairies which um i have and it, it sort of depicts what fairy life is like in this um uh sanctuary in minnesota and it's very different from the stuff i've read about that happens in short mountain and so there's a way in which that gives me a lot of freedom because it's not it's like i can sort of like imagine what one might look like in this very rural secluded area in which i grew up yeah well it's it's basically this is quintessentially american this is the city on the hill this is the creating like little utopian experiments, you know, or Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Blythdale Romance, right? Like having, uh, like I, I saw, I don't know if you've read that recently, but the the parallels between, by the way, uh, Bevy in, you know, How to Survive a Summer and uh, Mr. Hollingsworth in The Blythe are, are astounding. Like Hollingsworth is so similar. I have, I have never read that Hawthorne before, but I'm that, reading it now. That novel will just fire you up for your fairy project because it's it's um it's sort of loosely based on um Nathaniel Hawthorne the author it's loosely based on he participated in this utopian community based on like radical gender equality and and like all this stuff like in the 1830s called Brook Farm and it was this sort of intentional community, people trying to sort of live out like these radical values. And it, I mean, it, it fell apart like disastrously as these things often do. Uh, and, but he 
sort of came out of that experience and he turned the, made this novel out of it. And it's absolutely fascinating. Like you just see all the the really good intentions, but then you see people sort of falling back on their socialization and their their kind of, you know, they've internalized a lot of these like bad messages, right? And they it's it's absolutely it's a delightful, but I think my guess is your novel will will have some Definitely critics are going to, like in The New Yorker and stuff like that, they're definitely going to draw that parallel. So you might as well check, oh. check it out. Well, but it's, uh, well, this has been an absolutely, I, I I see that you have to meet with students in like six minutes and I, I wish I could talk to you for another hour. But um, yeah, I, that, I would definitely like to get you on the podcast for another uh, conversation at some point uh, in the near let's, future. Um, yeah, yeah, let's. Yeah, I'm. I'm willing to come back whenever. That would be great. I. I do know that my life is pretty. Like I'm in the middle of moving right now. I'm going to be staying a year in Cambridge. Oh wow, um, Massachusetts. So I'm going to be there for a while. Um, so I'm like in the middle of like packing up books in my office slash meeting with students today. Um, uh, and so I will. Um, I would love to come back though and talk about whatever. Yeah, you got it. And it, when you're up there, you will have to. Uh, it's it's a short short trip up to Montreal. I we're down in Boston. My my wife was born in Boston. There's lots of family around Boston. We're down there all the time. But you should oh definitely God, come up. Yeah. You should definitely come up to Montreal and uh, yeah, we could we could record an episode live in the like yeah. little studio. <laughs> uh, it would be great. Well, you know, I've already seen Calgary, so I don't know like. <laughs> Totally different. <laughs> totally different. Totally yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, my boyfriend's really good. Josh, he's great. He um, he is really good with French, and I'm not at all. So uh, that would be uh, <laughs> great to have him there as like a guide. Um, uh, well, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation, and I really look forward to uh, talking to you again. And this was, yeah, this is great. So, uh, just for our listeners, we will be posting links to buy. Uh, Nick White's books, and um, we are very much looking forward to what you do in the future. Yeah, well, I am. I'm definitely checking out the Blythdale uh, Blythdale romance. That's yeah. going to be top of the list. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go. Great. I'm going to go and read it again. I haven't read it in probably about I don't know twelve years, something like that. But I, I did my my master's degree was I, I looked at kind of utopian communes and movements and stuff. Like oh my that. god! I, well, I I need to like talk to you. Actually. Yeah, no, I, I have I, I, I've I been I've, I have a lot of things I'm going to send you. <laughs> so okay, no, yeah. that would be great. I would love to. I, I need to do more. I mean, I've I've researched everything. I can get my hands on about the radical fairy stuff, but I would love to get more. About yeah, I I sent you I sent you an article that my friend Stephen Marsh did on going to fairy com. Con, like it's like Comic Con, but for fairies. And he wrote this absolutely amazing article on, but he did a huge amount of research for that piece, which didn't end up going into. Uh, he wrote like three articles on on fairies and these communities. And, but uh, yeah, definitely he is somebody you absolutely have to talk to. Like he okay. he would he knows so much about that topic and he was really into it, but then he got uh, sidetracked by this work this book on the next American Civil War, which which he just published. But like he has he could just send you lots and lots of amazing stuff on um, what these communities are all about, you know. But and you're gonna email me that essay. Yes, I sent it to you already. I texted it to you. <laughs> while oh, you we were texted talking. it to me. Oh, while we were talking. Okay, yeah. yeah. Great. Okay, great. <laughs> 
Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I may lean on you to like see if I can talk to him and then also um, talk to the other person too who had spent time on my cousin Forrest. Yeah. Oh, your cousin Forrest. Yeah. 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 I would like to talk to Forrest as well. Awesome. Well, have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. This has been great, John.